This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. This next guest is one of my favorite people in the world. She wrote a great book uh, years ago called Quiet about the difference between introverts and extroverts, and I learned a huge amount from that. And now we're talking about her brand new book, Bittersweet, about how the feeling of melancholy can actually make you more creative, more able to connect with others, in a weird way, even more social. But how could you cultivate this feeling in yourself? What sort of exercises and practices can you do? Are you the sort of person who is willing to feel melancholy? What is melancholy? Well, let's find out with Susan Kane. A few years ago, Susan, I wrote an article about, it was something like 10 things for free that I value more than money. And, you know, there was kind of like cliche stuff like laughter. But one thing I put on this list, I think it was number nine on this list, was melancholy. And people would argue with me. They were like, doesn't melancholy, I don't like to be melancholy. People would say that it means sadness. Why do you like being melancholy? And I didn't really have an answer, but I just knew it was something... You know, like for instance, I could always trigger melancholy in myself by thinking of my daughters when they were children and how, you know, we always miss out on some opportunities when they're children, some time to be with them, some bonding time. But then also I miss those very sweet times Mm -hmm. with them. And that always triggers some melancholy, which I enjoy. It's sad, but it's an enjoyable kind of sadness. And I never really understood that paradox until reading your book, Bittersweet. Well, thank you. That's the best introduction ever because, yeah, I do feel I like specialize the whole, in those. <laughs> yeah, the whole reason I wrote this book was to understand that paradox. And I, I think this may have been before we officially started recording when we were trying to figure out volume levels, but you asked me a second ago, are you feeling sad? And um, well, the answer was no, but also my reaction that I didn't have a chance to say was like, no. And I, I mean, of course I do you sometimes feel sad? And I don't know, maybe I feel sad more often than the average person, but I don't really feel sad like a lot. I'm, it's more that I'm talking about some other kind of state that that I think you were just expressing, which is uh, this melancholy, bittersweet state where you feel a kind of connection to passing time and a connection to the fact that this world is a world of sorrows and also a world of joys and and there's some kind of intense beauty in that and some kind of intense joy in all of that. And I've been trying to figure this out my whole life. I mean, yeah, and because you, you use a couple of different words in the book to refer to uh, like almost like synonyms to melancholy, like uh, when something is sublime that gives you a similar sort of feeling or, or poignancy uh, mm-hmm. gives you a similar sort of feeling. Like, because I agree, it's not quite sadness, you know, like, but, but maybe give an example, uh, or what's the difference between sadness and melancholy in, in, in your mind? Like, what's, give, maybe give an example of one versus the other. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, for me, this book actually really started with what is my most intense example, although there's so many, but, um, and that is listening to sad or minor key music. And I had this experience once with, back, back when I was a, a law student a gazillion years ago, and I was sitting in my law school dorm and some friends came to the dorm room to pick me up to go to class. And I was blasting out on my stereo speakers, you know, some kind of melancholic minor key music, which I listened to a lot. And my friends were like, why are you listening to this funeral music? And at the time that seemed funny and I laughed and we went to class and that was the end of it, except that I could not stop thinking about that question um, because, well, first of all, why is it that listening to that music is kind of vaguely embarrassing except when done privately and at midnight? Um, it, so what is it about our culture that makes it so? But also that kind of music, and I know many people feel this because I've since researched this, it makes you feel a kind of sense of of transcendence. It's a kind of state of communion with all the 
beings that have known the sorrow that that music is expressing. And then there's a sense of awe that the musician is able to transform sorrow into beauty. Um, so it was really trying to understand that that got me down this garden path. And by the way, you would mention different songs and music that you listen to for, and and I would listen to it as you recommended it. I while I was reading the book, oh, I would wow. say, Alexa, play this now. Alexa, play Leonard Cohen. Alexa, play <laughs> this adagio in whatever G minor. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned an interesting statistic near the beginning of the book, which is that in the '60s, most music was not written in minor keys. It was very poppy and positive and happy and everyone's at a party or at the beach or whatever. Mm -hmm. And now the majority of even popular music is written in minor keys. Why do you think that transformation happened? I think we've just become more, more comfortable with complex emotions as the culture has moved to being able to talk more about uh, the reality of being human. I think the music follows suit. And, um, and there's this other amazing study that has found that for people who whose favorite songs on their playlists are the happy, upbeat dance tunes, they'll listen to those about on an average of 175 times. But the people whose favorites are their sad songs listen to those 800 times. So it's like yeah. 175 compared to 800. I remember you writing that statistic and then thinking about on it, it's it's really true. I mean, even... One step further, like if there's a real, if like I love um, really good theme songs to TV shows, and the best ones that I'm thinking of are all like heavily minor key, and I'll just listen to them over and over. I'll watch like the video, the trailer over and over and over again, like on YouTube. Yeah. And well, I mean, I'm curious if you feel the following thing because when researchers have asked people, like, why do they do this? They'll, they'll, they'll inevitably say that the music is connected somehow to like wonder and awe and joy. So like, like they call this the sublime emotions and people say that's why they listen to this kind of music. And so for me, that was like the paradox of why should it be that something ostensibly sad could give rise to the most uplifted emotions that humans are capable of? That, that was really the question I wanted to answer. And like, and what I ended up seeing is it wasn't just music, you know, it's just this state of being in general, like the, this, this melancholic state is connected to creativity and to human connection in general. So we should be talking about it more. Yeah. So, so kind of the idea of the book, correct me if I'm wrong, is there's two ideas. One is we underestimate melancholy in our lives and, and the role of it, like as, as, many examples in your book describe, and as my basic example describes, people view it as sadness and kind of dismiss it as such, and that it's an emotion to be avoided. But your point is, A, it exists and it's not sadness and it's and 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 we should appreciate it more. And B, this this feeling of this melancholy or or access to the sublime or 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 poignancy actually connects us to kind of wisdom or, or like you say, human connection or uh, empathy or, you know, just understanding more about the world around us, even, even nature. And I think ultimately it, it, it's almost like you're saying in the book that the ability to feel melancholy or intense melancholy is, is almost like a superpower in terms of surviving moments of grief and connecting to others and finding reasons to, to live and so on. Yes, absolutely. All of the things you just said. Um, and then I would add to those things that you just said. It's also connected to our ability to be creative in the first place. You know, and um, you know, there's been this kind of like age-old question of like, well, is there something about um, creativity or creative people that it's somehow connected to depression in some way? And, and I think that's kind of the wrong question because I don't think that, um, that depression itself is helpful for creativity. We ac we actually know the opposite that it's not because clinical depression is like a state of emotional numbness where it's very hard to do anything from there. It's more I think the sense of the the happiness and sadness in everything and the impulse to be longing for a world and a state that's better than the one that we're currently living in. 
and and the longing to transform the imperfection that we're living in into something that's closer to perfection, that's really the heart of creativity. And so this state of mind is is actually incredibly precious. It's, it's a kind of creative elixir. So so let me just play uh, devil's advocate here. Mm-hmm. Of course, if, let's say um, you, you know you refer to you know in, in the U.S. we have this tyranny of positivity. Like everybody's got to be positive. You know get up on the stage and jump around and be rah-rah and, and you're going to go get them and get that job, get that money, get that career, uh, get that relationship, whatever. And uh, uh, sometimes striving for those types of goals helps you to be creative as well. Well, yeah. I mean, there's, we 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 need the positive side also so it's not to say that we should only be in in this one state of mind it's it's just to say that this state of mind is a kind of an overlooked superpower and that when we overdo it on the rah rah jump up go get them that's not telling the truth about what most human beings experience so it can feel momentarily motivating until when you're like in a room full of people and everybody's in that rah rah state of mind um and then you're back in the room by yourself and you're like, wait a minute, that's not actually how I feel um, or that's not actually what's true. And so the motivation of that can wear off quite quickly. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, let's break it down in terms of creativity. First off, when you're really positive, uh, you know, in the way I was describing before, it's a very forward-thinking kind of emotion. Like whatever happened in the past is the past. Now I'm moving forward and I'm going to start achieving no matter, regardless of what happened before. I'll learn from my mistakes because that's what happens. Failure is good because I'm going to learn from my mistakes mm-hmm. and then I'm going to move forward and be positive. But the thing about melancholy, and I'm just trying to understand it in real time here about the connection with that and creativity, is like take the example of oh, if I miss my daughters when they were real little and I remember different things that happened and so on. It, A, it, it connects me to that story again, so I can I can write that story or similar to it and evoke similar emotions, and I'm really there, and and uh, it makes me creative in that sense. And I guess another way is that creativity is about solving problems, and so I have a problem. One is that I miss, and I'm just I'm going in, you know, I'm hammering on this one example, but. In this particular case, my problem, if there is one, is that I'm missing those earlier times with my children. And creativity is all about solving problems, really, in a way that's that's ultimately, you know, pleasing. You know, even in, even a song that's written in a minor key, it kind of finishes on a, you know, I don't want to say an upbeat moment, but it it, it kind of comes full circle. It it takes you out of the sadness at the very end somehow, and. Uh, so maybe that's two connections to creativity. I think that's right. And I would add to it, there's a kind of emotional resonance to it. So like if you had just told me a story about like a great time that you had had at your daughter's fourth birthday party, like that would have been a good story and an interesting story. Um, if you add to it, wow, you know, I'm I'm actually feeling this incredibly this incredible poignancy because my daughter's now, I don't, I don't know how old she is, but my daughter's now grown up and I'm, and I'm remembering that moment at the fourth birthday party and I'm connected to that moment, but it's also in the past. And like, I'm, I'm really drawn in to the way you're telling that story um, because you're, you're telling it kind of several layers deep as opposed to just the story itself. And what you're also doing is like, you're connecting when you tell it that way, you're connecting to what I believe is the deepest fundamental human impulse that we don't talk about so much in our very secular culture. Um, but it is the longing to feel connected to a more perfect and beautiful world. Um, mm-hmm. And you see like you see the manifestations of this quite clearly in our religions where we're longing for Eden or for Zion or for Mecca. But there's a secular manifestation too of like we're longing for somewhere over the rainbow or you know you're Harry Potter and and the moment you enter the story as a baby 
you were in a state of longing because an hour ago your parents were just killed. So you're entering the story as an orphan. And it's like, it's understood psychologically in that story that that the the very catalyst of everything that Harry Potter is about to do, um, the, the catalyst for that is the fact that he was just orphaned and, and arrives on the Dursleys' doorsteps, you know, without parents. And, and like, there's a reason that so many of our greatest children's stories the protagonist is an orphan or that like Homer, uh, that Odysseus in, in, in the Odyssey, in Homer's Odyssey, like the, the epic adventure starts when he is seized by homesickness and he's like weeping on a beach longing for his homeland of Ithaca. And that's what gets him to take the adventure in the first place. So that's kind of the magical state to tap into. And I guess also, and you suggest this in the book, is that those who tend to feel more melancholy than others, and you have this bittersweet quiz that you refer to to kind of rank yourself. But when you're feeling melancholy, I shouldn't compare, I shouldn't make it relative to others. When when someone's feeling melancholy, they're usually more empathetic. They're usually more connected to other people's emotions. And for creativity, obviously, you need to be not just about your own emotions, mm-hmm. but to be able to express the emotions of others in a story, for instance, or or to connect to the emotions of others through music or through painting or or whatever. So, so I guess that's another part of the connection between melancholy and uh, uh, creativity. Yeah, because it's like, why why do you write music? Why do you write a poem? Why, why do you do something creative? Like, would you would you do it if you were the only person on earth? Um, would you still feel that impulse to self-expression? Um, you might feel some of that impulse, but not to the same degree. Because like ultimately, it's self-expression in the service of communion with the people who are going to experience that which you're creating. Um, you know, and, and the most amazing moment as a as a consumer of art, you know, whether you're a reader or uh, looking at a painting or whatever, that the sublime moment is where you realize that the artist has just expressed something that you yourself has experienced, that you yourself have experienced, and you're having this moment of communion between the the creator and the gazer upon it. Um, so that's what's happening. That's a really good point. Like, even though I make it a, a practice to write every single day, and I've been doing this for decades, mm-hmm. I don't keep a diary. And people say, why don't you keep a diary? And I say, I have no interest in just writing to myself. <laughs> So I I can only write if there's a glimmer of hope that other people can read it. (laughs) That's so interesting, actually, because I I, I don't keep a diary right now, but I have throughout my life. Um, And I do advise, especially younger people, to keep one because I do feel like it's important to get into the habit of telling the full truth in a way that's much harder to do when you know other people are going to read it. Um, you know, and even when I was writing this book and especially the memoir parts of it that were hard for me as a private person to be sharing, like I had to kind of go through a um, a thought process of saying, well, no one's going to read this, at least not yet. <laughs> and then you can figure out later um, what people will read. So I think it's a balance. Yeah, it is a balance. But I always challenge myself to say things about myself that I'm afraid to reveal. Because then I feel at the very least, that's an in for people to come into this, to into something I write and say, oh my gosh, he said that about himself. So it's, yeah, a, you it's a do, do You do that a lot. I mean, do you have to like, do you have to overcome resistance before you do it? Or Oh yeah, I'm it- afraid every time. I, I have a rule. I won't hit publish on something unless I'm afraid of what people will think. So obviously not wow. everything is like that, but most of the things I hit publish on are like that. But and then sometimes people say, "Well, how are you going to remember things if you don't keep a, a journal or a diary?" And I say, "If I don't remember it, then it wasn't interesting." <laughs> so oh, that's I'm, interesting. I might have felt that in the past, but now I feel like I forget everything, so I like have to write it down. Age for me does that. Like I don't remember as many things. I'm surprised when I look back at writing from ten years ago how much I remembered from ten years earlier. Yeah. But you know, but then I'll have different things to write. Who knows? I don't know. But uh, you know. Why do you think the U.S., and maybe it's the world, but it definitely seems like the U.S. specifically uh, has this tyranny of positivity? Uh, you know, and, and Susan David, who's been on this podcast, also you, you referred to her mentioning that. So in the book, I actually trace the history of this, and it's like a long history, but I'll, I'll say one thing about it, that um, when we became 
such a business-oriented society throughout the 19th century, um, what started happening is that, you know, you clearly had some people who were succeeding and some people who were never succeeding, or maybe they would succeed and then they would blow up in some spectacular bankruptcy, which kept happening in the 19th century. And um, so it it happens in the 21st century. (laughs) And the 21st century. (laughs) And so like what this question started to be asked over and over again, which was, you know, if someone fails at business, is it because of bad luck or external forces, or is it because of something inside the character or soul of that person that predisposed them to failure. And increasingly, that question was answered by saying, yes, it's something inside the person. And this is when you start having like the language of winners and losers. And, and the word loser has increased in usage, you know, kind of like going up all the time. Um, and if you start looking at yourself and at everyone around you through this prism of, is that person a winner or a loser? Then of course, you're never going to want to talk about melancholy or loss or sorrow or longing or anything like that that seems to be kind of on the lost side of the ledger. Um, You know, you want to be projecting the emotions that seem to be associated with winning. Um, And these complexities of holding happiness and sadness at the same time and where that, and, and you know, the, the sublime places that could lead you, those, those quickly get dispensed with. So that's where we are. And that's what we have to reclaim. I think that's true. And I think, I think failure also is associated with shame. Like you don't want people to know that you failed, even though later on, you know, I feel like there's like been a whole genre of failure porn lately where yes. you 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 can't succeed unless you fail, which I don't believe to be true at all. But, and I do agree with the people who say that it's largely is in your character when you do fail. I mean, there's a luck factor as well, but uh, it's not necessarily in your character. It's experience. Like, in, in I think it was, there's an old Chinese saying where like, you know, you you, you have to fail twice before you finally succeed that... Because you just don't know enough. It's it's very complicated to succeed and and then to b- grow from that. Like it's too easy to fall into to you know your youthful bad habits after that first success. But there, I mean, there also are so many other factors of like you know just good luck and bad luck and external circumstances and like one of the um, headlines that I wrote about in the book. So even in the depression, the Great Depression. 1929, when all these people are experiencing bankruptcy, not for reasons that have to do with themselves. Um, Even then, there are these headlines that say things like, loser commits suicide after bankruptcy. Um, Mm. You know, so it's this view of like everything being intrinsic to the person. Yeah, no, I agree. And there is definitely like some some luck. I think it's probably just a case-by-case basis. I always, you know, I have failed at different points. And I always, I refer to it as taking ownership of it. Like I can't blame Mm -hmm. anybody else because there's usually some things that where you could have mitigated risk, even if you had bad luck. And I think that's why as one gets older and more experienced, the likely of having continuing success goes, goes up. But okay. So there's two different directions to go. One is with the, the, the tyranny of positive, Positivity, I would add also this constant seeking for the frontier. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's again this idea that the past is behind us mm-hmm. and now we're moving forward. We got to just find what the frontier is. And now, of course, the frontier is not geographic, but uh, there's several frontiers. You know, and, and one of them, which you refer to a lot in the book, is, is mortality. How do, we, how do we go past the frontier of current mortality and maybe live forever. And there's so many efforts and technologies and authors and scientists working on issues of anti-aging. And, you know, and I think to myself, I don't want to live forever. That seems really horrible. <laughs> but like, you know, maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah, this is something I thought about a lot because part of um, the book research I did, I kind of plopped down in the middle of uh, one of these conferences of of people who are working on trying to live forever or at least, you know, live for an incredibly much longer time healthily. And I guess I I had the instinct like you of like, oh, I don't think I'd really want to live forever. But 
you know, one, one of those people did this thought experiment with me where he was like, okay, well, let's say you could push the button and decide the day that you're not going to live anymore. Um, you know, would you push it tomorrow? And of course the answer is no. And then it's like, okay, would you push it the next day? No. Would you push it a year from now? No. Okay. So like, when would you push the damn button? And I don't, I don't know. It's very hard to imagine the day that you would actually push the button. And again, this is granting that you're living healthily. So we're not talking about living in with illness and decrepitude. Um, this is like everything's fine with your body. So that was really interesting to me as a challenge. That is an interesting thought experiment, but but I think it's a false thought experiment. How so? Because like you said, first off, if you are sick and unhealthy, there are many times you would press that button. Let's totally. say you had totally. let's say you had a stroke and you were locked in and you were vaguely aware but but you couldn't move and of course you're going to press that button every single day. So so that's an extreme but that happens to millions of people. No, that that for sure, but he's saying he's saying if you were healthy cuz cuz right. what, what what the people working on this are not pushing for another 100 years of being decrepit. They're pushing for, you know, lots of extra time where you live healthily. But the other thing it assumes is that your thoughts and emotions don't change as you age. Like, mm-hmm. of course, right now I'm not going to push it. And and it's probably true on any given day, I would never say, yes, I'm going to push it the next day uh, when given that choice. But but part of it also is the mystery, you know, there's the, the, that yeah. you don't know when it's going to happen. And eventually you're go- people get sick. I mean, nobody wants to die tragically in an accident, but eventually people get sick. Even if you live 150 years old, you get sick and things happen. So you're right. I guess it's interesting. Like if, if I have a high quality of life and I'm living like I'm 20 years old when I'm 120, I probably would not want to press it. But, but I don't know how I will feel then. Like my thoughts and emotions, like do you ever look back, you've been writing for a long time. Do you ever look back at writing you did maybe even 15, 20 years ago and you, there's a different person writing it a little bit. Maybe you were a little bit more confident or positive or aggressive somehow in your in your writing. I don't know. Like, have you noticed changes in yourself as you write through the years? Oh, I mean, well, I definitely changed through the years. Um, it's funny. I haven't asked the question so much about my writing, um, but I change a lot. I mean, I look back at my writing, and I I, I definitely see more arrogance from like if I if I look at things I wrote thirty years ago. Uh, I feel like, oh gosh, this guy is a horrible writer. He's, there's so much <laughs> arrogance in it. I mean, and, and, and it's it's your point earlier about writing and creativity, and uh, about how people don't want to see just like a great story about a four year old's birthday party. They need a little bit of angst in it. A little, uh, you know. Carrie Fisher once said, uh, "No one wants to read about good looking rich people who never have problems." <laughs> yeah, and but I don't think that's only because they feel jealous about those uh, of such a person i think it's more that they feel it's not true um, yeah. like they want to read about the truth they want they want like one of the the whole point of creating anything in the storytelling genre i think is is to express the kinds of truths that people don't usually say out loud like i think that's part of why people are so drawn to what you do because you're constantly saying things that most people don't say out loud um, and it, like, it's such a generous act to do that. Like, like, are there any heroes in literature who, who aren't at least in doubt of their own abilities and personality and so on? I mean, they, there may be ones who are not in doubt, but then the story becomes like nemesis and hubris, right? Like you had too much hubris and so then you meet your nemesis. So like, yeah. there's always something. So something, <laughs> so if they don't have doubt in the beginning, they have doubt a few chapters in. Yeah, yeah, because like that's the whole point of the story. Like nobody gets away with with too much hubris or lack of doubt. But it's interesting though. Like, why do you think people? I mean, I, I guess it's normal for people to want to live as long as possible and to live forever. And 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 you're right. That thought experiment is is interesting. But I don't know. Would you want to live? Uh, like thinking about it right now. Let's say, let's say the thought experiment is not. Uh, do you want to die tomorrow? but do you want to die sometime within the next 200 years? <laughs> then it's a little less clear. You'd probably still say, oh, I'm not going to push that button. But it's a little <laughs> less clear, I think, the answer. I know. It's it's really hard. I don't know. 200 years, I'm like, yeah, I'll probably stay. Like, I'd like to know my great-great-grandchildren and all this. I, I, I don't know. Maybe there comes the time that 
I, I, I guess I honestly, honestly don't know the answer. Um, but what I ended up feeling like was that both things are true, which is to say, I'm on the side of all these scientists who are pushing to extend our health spans to some untold degree. I'm on their side. And at the same time, I feel like that's not the world we have right now. And we're not going to have that world anytime soon. And so in this world that we have, I want to understand, you know, what what does it mean to live in this world and what are the what I, I what is this sensation that I have that this this feeling of us all being connected through this burden of mortality, you know, the fact that we know that everybody we love is going to die. That's such a burden. Um, and yet there's such a communion in that because we're all united in that reality. And that's something I like to pay more attention to. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, If you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. One thing that you mentioned about mortality, like knowing that you're getting older and probably closer in percentage to the time you die compared with the time you're born is that you call this the paradox of aging in the book, which is that as you age, you're wiser and you have less stress, at, at least many people. I, I don't think that's true for all older people, but you have you have less stress in general. And I always used to think it was because they have less stress because they're going to die soon. So they don't have to like make enough money to live for 50 more years. They only <laughs> right. have to make enough money to live for 
15 more years or whatever. So, but, but why do you think older people in general, according to these studies that you mentioned, have less stress than younger people? You, you mentioned a little bit that the younger people think the music's never going to end and the older people are distinctly aware that it will end. So they appreciate every moment a little more, I guess, idealistically, but, but is that true? Like, what do you, what do you think it is about aging? Yeah. I mean, the fascinating thing about those studies is that those were done by Laura Karstensen at Stanford, and she had all kinds of hypotheses for why it was true. But she ended up finding that the real key to it was just the appreciation of life's fragility. And that as an older person, you're like intensely aware of how fragile it all is because you know you only have a few years left. But she ended up finding that when she looked at younger people who also had been made to feel life's fragility, um, maybe because they were living through political instability or some other kind of crisis, um, that those people had these same other emotional benefits of feeling less stress and being more focused on meaning and depth and in-depth relationships and all of this. So it's really fragility itself or the awareness of fragility itself that seems to carry all these benefits. And I I think that's the thing that I have felt instinctively all my life when I listen to that kind of music because that we started talking about. You know, what that music does is it puts you in mind of fragility and it makes you aware of how intensely precious everything is. So it gets you into this deeper state. Yeah, yeah. So so given that there's all these benefits to melancholy and 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 this state of melancholy or I don't know what you call this, sublime, sublimeness or poignancy. How can we cultivate that more in ourselves? And you talk about this a lot in the book, but what are, so I, I could throw out this, your suggestions to you, but, but uh, <laughs> what, what are some of your suggestions? Well, I mean, the funny thing is I, I asked Laura Karstensen, the, the Stanford psychologist, what she would recommend given her findings. And the first thing she said, and I don't think she knew that this was where I had started, but the first thing she said was, to listen to that kind of music. <laughs> so I will say I have a bittersweet playlist on Spotify and um, Apple Music that I just put up for people who want to do that. Really? So if I search uh, Susan Cain's and Spotify, I'll come up with your... Susan Cain's Bittersweet and Spotify? Susan Cain Bittersweet. Yeah. Yeah. You'll find it there. Um, and it's also on my um, website, if that's easier, which is susancain.net. You can get a link over there. Um, but... It's also helpful not only to interact with that kind of music specifically, but just to interact with beauty in general. Because um, you know that feeling when you, or that experience when, when you're interacting with something intensely beautiful and it's so beautiful that it makes you cry, like you have tears yeah. in your eyes. And, and you think, well, what is that? Why, why am I moved to tears by something beautiful? And, and I think the the real deep answer to that is that you see that kind of beauty and it reminds you of that state that we're all longing for. You know, it, it, it's like a representation of the Garden of Eden. It, it's a representation for the place we feel like we're meant to be where we're actually not, you know, but it's like a momentary glimpse of it. Um, and those kinds of states are incredibly elevating and transformative. That that's that's why we love to watch Olympic athletes, you know, or your your favorite musician performing at a concert. It's like you're getting glimpses of, of Eden when you do that. Why do you think that is? Because okay, when I think of the Garden of Eden, I think of a place that's considered a perfect place where there isn't sadness. I'm trying to make the connection between these states and, and what you're saying about the Garden of Eden. Because what what I'm saying is that as humans, what we most long for is the place where there isn't sorrow, you know, there's just perfect love, truth, beauty, goodness, kindness, you know, all of it. Um, but but the awareness that we're not in that state is what paradoxically brings us a little bit closer to it. And and so, so okay, so listening to this music, and by the way, I just looked at your list, it's a very beautiful list. I <laughs> Thank you. I, love almost everything on here. I'm surprised you don't have Nobody Knows by Leonard Cohen. That's like my favorite Leonard Cohen song. Oh my gosh. I mean, Cohen. I could have had like 20 Leonard Cohen songs, but I felt like I couldn't make it a Leonard Cohen playlist. So I had to exercise some restraint. Um, but I'm actually adding to the list over time. And on Apple, it's now a little bit longer. I have to 
catch it up on Spotify. You should almost let people add to it on, you know, have their own personal bittersweet lists on your on your bittersweet website. So have a functionality where people could submit their own lists. That's actually might be interesting. a really good idea because I've asked people on social media, you know, what, what are your favorite songs? And I always get back a gazillion answers and then I don't know what to do with it. Um, so yeah, just to cr- have a co-created list is a great idea. Yeah, like a collaborative one. Uh, but yeah, it's a now what what um, okay. So what's another uh, method for kind of cultivating these feelings? Because because again, on, in a very short term, you'd want to cultivate this feeling if you want to be creative. Because there's evidence that this is linked to higher states of creativity. Mm-hmm. But in general, to your to your point throughout the book, it increases empathy, increases your connection, ability to have human connection, and, and so on. Mm-hmm. So what's kind of like other methods that that you have found successful? Yeah, okay. So here's a couple more. Um, One is the the Stoic uh, practice of memento mori, remembering death, which sounds to our contemporary ears like a really morbid practice. But it's really, it's not just the Stoics who did it. Like Buddhist monks have done this. Many contemplatives have done this. And it's basically just reminding yourself that, you know, you may not be here tomorrow. You have no idea. And I will tell you that has been like so concretely personally transformative for me and to you, to the story you were talking about with your your kind of nostalgia for your daughter's childhood I had this experience my kids now are 12 and 14 but a few years ago when I was really deep into writing this book and I was totally busy and and we had this ritual of bedtime every night and I love that ritual and that was the time that the kids would most open up and everything but it was really hard for me not to be looking at my cell phone also. My kids would look away for a minute and I would like sneak a look at my email because I, I was so busy. But I started doing this practice of memento mori and I completely stopped looking at the cell phone. You know, like I would say to myself, they may not be here tomorrow, you may not be here tomorrow, you have no idea. And it wasn't like I was wallowing in sorrow over that feeling. It was just like a reminder. That's all it was. And it but I put the cell phone down right away and I didn't feel the impulse to pick it back up again. So it was like instantly I was reminded of how precious every single one of those moments was. Yeah, no, I and I and like you said, I think that's, yes, the Stoics kind of name it, but I think it, it, it's a practice that occurs in almost every religion. Like you ever read the book um, or see the movie The Razor's Edge? It's by... Somerset Mom, but uh, oh gosh, uh, I read Bill that Murray book a million years ago. I didn't see the yeah. movie, but I read it decades ago. I think it's based on this real life spiritual figure, uh, Ramana Maharshi, who, um, according to his story, everybody's got their origin story. But he was like walking to school one day, and he lay down on the ground and tried to imagine what it was like to be com- to be dead, as if he was dead that moment, uh-huh. and that for him was a big spiritual moment. And the next day, he basically dropped out of school and just started meditating. And they built a whole, he did, he meditated and didn't speak for years. And then they built a whole ashram around him. And then he started giving lectures and so on. But, um, you know, that's just one story among many that, that yeah. are, are like that. But, okay, so, so listening to, you know, this type of music, uh, doing the memento mori practice. Engaging uh, with beauty in general. So like nature and things like that? Yeah, or like, I, I'll i just tell you my version of it, but it's going to be totally different for everyone. This is just my idiosyncratic thing. But um, Going I, to fashion shows? <laughs> no, <laughs> no <I'm> <laughs> I actually started a couple of years ago. Um, I started asking people for their favorite art accounts on Twitter and I started following all of them. So now my feed is much more full of art than it is full of, you know, toxic Twitter nonsense. Um And so I started every morning, especially when I was writing the book, I did this every day. I would pick a favorite piece of art and then I would um, think of a a poem or a quotation or an idea that I loved that went well with the art. And I would post that every morning on social. Um, You know, and then that started attracting other people who wanted to be living at that frequency. And it was such a grounding way of starting the day. So I still try to do that. I love that idea. Yeah, and it's quite time-consuming, by the way. <laughs> like, would you research the art, or were you just focused on like what you felt from the art? Mostly I was focused on what I felt from it. If, if I'd had more time, I actually would have loved to go down the rabbit hole of 
finding out all about that particular work of art. And sometimes I would do it, but not always. In the book too, you mentioned um, humility, like cultivating humility is a good way to get in touch with these emotions. Yeah, and um, I think it was Dr. Keltner, I'm not sure now who did this research, who found that um, like the very act of bowing down puts you into that state of humility, which was really interesting to me. Like if you think of, you know, how often like in a yoga practice, you'd have these gestures of, of lowering your head. I found that really interesting. Yeah, and there are there are types of um, like Buddhism or Zen Buddhism specifically where the meditation is just bowing. Yeah, like you bow a thousand times, and of course in Islam you bow to Mecca uh, five times a day, and so bowing is a part right. of a lot, a lot yeah, of religious and then in practices. The, in the um, Alenu, the the Jewish prayer also has the automatic bowing as part of it. So yeah, there really is something to that which feels so antithetical to kind of contemporary Western culture. Like, why would you be bowing down to anyone or or anything? Um, well, why do you think for evolutionary reasons, bowing is, I mean, it sounds like bow, bowing is biologically connected to this feeling. And so why do you think for evolutionary reasons, humans, the humans who survived, as opposed to the humans who died, um, have this reaction to bowing? That's a really interesting question. And so I don't know the answer, so I'm just speculating. But um, I mean, we we're not designed to be able to live on our own. Like even those of us like me, who like I really want and need and love a lot of solitude, you know, we're still not inherently solitary creatures in terms of how we survive. So um, I think like being able to remember that uh, that it's not just us and kind of deferring to the fact that like if you think of us as as living in tribal groups and each member of the group is has their own power that they're contributing to the greater um, group ability for all of them to survive. Bowing down is is a way of acknowledging the other powers that are there that you don't have yourself. That's probably true because probably if someone was too, let's say, arrogant in a in a tribe and tribe mem- tribes were only like thirty people at the time, like forty thousand years ago. You know, if you were too arrogant, you would probably hurt the tribe. Like you wouldn't contribute to the tribe's well-being, you know, ability to survive. Yeah, and as a result, you would be taken down. I mean, I know that this is true in chimpanzee tribes that, you know, if there's one uh, dominant male who becomes too dominant in, in a way that's not serving others, two or three other males who who are more collaborative by nature and they'll team up and depose the dominant one. Mm-hmm. And I guess this is also related, like you mentioned a lot throughout the book, that melancholy is related to feelings of separation. Like again, the example, I'm separated from by time and distance from these four-year-old daughters I used to have. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, maybe you feel melancholy to kind of close that distance in whatever ways you can, and that kept tribes together. Yeah, I mean, that that fundamental pain of separation, that's... That's that same fundamental longing that that I believe is at the heart of humanity. And, and it's at the heart of why humans have always had a figure of God. Again, like whether, you know, in your modern manifestation, you're, you consider yourself atheist or secular, it's almost irrelevant. But the fact is that we, we, we come into this world with this kind of longing for, um, you know, a love that is never separable. A, a, yeah. a love that that isn't touched by by time in the way that you're talking about, um, whether you see that as divine love or as as a human love to which we aspire, it's kind of the same thing. So, so let me ask you, like, I know you know while you were writing this book, your brother passed away from COVID, your father right passed away from COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, how did this affect the writing of the of the book? You know. I actually really don't think it affected the writing of the book because I was already so deep down this path before COVID ever happened. I would say it was more that the fact that I was on this path affected the way I mourned those losses. Um, you know, it do- it didn't take away from the raw grief of it 
you know, and I remember in the days after each of those losses, I, I, I remember feeling physically nauseous for days. It was just this nausea that I couldn't kick. Uh, I mean, it eventually did go away. But there was something about having been so immersed in the idea of impermanence and the way in which we're all connected through that that was a kind of solace. It it, it was a kind of solace. And, I, you know, when I talk about this in the book, it's like two things are true at the same time. <laughs> Number one, that that the awareness of impermanence is an incredibly helpful emotional or spiritual practice. And number two is that it will never take you all the way there. Um, you know, and I, I, in the book, I, I, um, I share this poem by this Japanese Buddhist poet, Issa. He's, he's considered one of the great uh, poetry masters in, in Japan. And, um, and he had had this life where he kept losing all his children in infancy. And then finally, one of them survived to the age of two or three, this beautiful daughter. And then she too dies of, of smallpox. Um, and so he's totally distraught. And he writes this poem where he says, I know that this world of dew, like D-E-W, that this world of dew is just a world of dew, meaning I, I know everything's impermanent. Um, and then he says, but even so. And so he's kind of, he's talking about these two truths that are both there, Everything's yeah, and, impermanent, but I'm never going to be okay with the fact that I lost my daughter. Never, ever, ever will I be okay with it. I think this was a great insight in, in your book, or like reading your book, the difference between, like everyone always, say, always says, you need to accept the fact that things are impermanent, but you make a distinction between acceptance and awareness. And you point out that it's basically enough to be aware that things are impermanent. You don't always have to accept it because it's, it might not be truthful to that you're going to accept it, but, but being aware of it is a truth. Exactly. Yeah, and I think I think except for certain griefs and for certain traumas, I think acceptance is asking too much of ourselves and it's not it's not real. Um like it wasn't even real for this Buddhist master poet, you know. Even he yeah. was saying, this is how I feel and and, and he's basically saying this is how you're going to feel too. Like he he knows someone else is going to be reading the poem, like to what we were talking about before that he's not just writing this down for himself. He's writing it because he knows every single person reading it who's experienced a true loss is going to feel the same thing. Okay, so I also have a question. I wanted to, uh, to revisit Quiet for one quick second. That your, sure. book, your earlier book, Quiet, which is about basically the experience of being an introvert. And it's an amazing book. I highly recommend it uh, to everyone. It really helped me a lot. You know, you, as you mentioned, it's a spectrum from introversion to extroversion. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm an introvert who's never shy. I have no problem, you know, introducing myself to strangers or doing things a little out of the ordinary in front of people. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I can't. But I can't go to a party. Huh. <laughs> and like I could do stand up comedy on stage for an hour, mm -hmm. but then if I have to talk to people afterwards for ten minutes, um. That's it. I'm wiped oh, out. Yeah, I have heard that from so many performers. Because I, I don't know if this is what you feel, but what people tell me is they feel like when they're on the stage, they're kind of like controlling the inputs. You know, they sort of know what's happening. But then when you're off the stage and you're interacting with a thousand people at once, it's just too much coming at you. Yeah, and I just don't know. I just don't know what to say to anybody. I don't feel like I can you know, it's it's somehow easier to connect when I'm like writing to a bunch of people or talking to a whole bunch of people and 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 then the energy like immediately, even if I'm having a party in my own home, I have to go into like my bedroom every yeah. 10, 15 minutes. But what if you're in a relationship with someone who's an extrovert? Like mm -hmm. they love going to parties, they can easily navigate small talk or even medium talk yeah. and that gives them energy. And whereas like, if you're an introvert, it's sort of like you're the, you're the opposite. You get energy when you're recuperating alone as opposed to when you're in a social situation. And there's nothing wrong with either situation, but I'm just wondering, you know, how would you recommend people who are together who are once an introvert, once an extrovert, how do they kind of even navigate their social schedule? One always wants to go out, the other wants to stay in. Yeah, I mean, the the main thing is to talk about it and negotiate it out with an understanding of what each person's temperament is. And I say the understanding because if you don't have that, 
invariably there's some kind of feeling that each person is bringing in of like, like what's wrong with my partner that, you know, like, why does he have to go out all the time? Why, why can't he be just happy just being with me? Or, you know, or, or the extrovert is thinking, why, why is he like having to stay in all the time? Um, it's more like the introvert in, in the case of me is feeling like, why can't I talk to anybody after 15 minutes? <laughs> Yeah, well, that's because you're and living I, in and a I culture And I come out like a storm. <laughs> I come a storm for the first 15 minutes and then the storm goes away. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, so many people feel this way. Um, but yeah, like it really does need to get talked out from both people feeling that both people's temperaments and preferences are okay. And then like once you've understood that or processed that... Um, you know, to just figure out and kind of in advance, okay, well, how often are we going to go out and socialize? And what is our socializing going to look like? And, you know, maybe you agree that you're going to do like one big dinner party a month, but you're going to have two, you're going to follow that by two nights of Netflix on the couch or whatever it is that works for you. Um, but instead of like trying to hash it out night after night after night, having a shared agreement on your approach to life is really helpful. Yeah, that could be. Uh, we'll we'll see. So, <laughs> are you uh, in a new relationship where you're not? No, no, this? no. I and and I'm uh, over overdoing it. Like, I, and you know, my wife and I we lived in a very social area for a while. We moved down to um, uh, Florida, and I was very good at introducing us to all the neighbors and all the people. Like, I have again, I'm not shy, and I'm very, I'm willing to just go out there and say say hi to people and start things up. And she's really good at continuing the relationship. <laughs> like I'm uh-huh. really bad at like getting back to people, following up and then going out to dinner and going out to parties. And she's very good at that. So it was, it's very complimentary. It's a very good thing. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes it was just too much for me if I was out too many times and it would be too boring for her if she wasn't out enough. And I think we kind of resolved it, but it's just... It's just a, a factor. It's not a bad factor in our relationship. It's just a factor mm-hmm. in our relationship. Yeah, yeah. That we're, we're constantly negotiating that terrain. And she can do some things on her own also, right? Where you don't have to go along. You know, then I feel like there's something wrong with me. I'm just sitting at home while everyone's out having fun. But again, awareness is, in this case, more important than acceptance. Well, I don't know. I I was actually sitting here thinking the exact opposite. I I, I think in this case... I think trying to get to a place of acceptance is actually really key um, mm. because I, I think it is possible for you to get to a place where where you accept that this is your preference of how you want to spend your time. And you'll still have the practical question of how do you work it out between you and your wife or or even the question between you and you of how, maybe sometimes you want to be out and social even if it's a little uncomfortable just because you want to make those connections with your neighbors or whatever. Yeah. Where you're doing all of that from a place of 100% self-acceptance and then you make the decision. I think that's possible to get there. I think that's a good point because I think I tended to blame myself and then I would get anxious like, oh, does everybody think I'm weird or do they not like me because I don't, because I want to go, I want to be the first one to leave and, and really it had nothing to do with anybody. It literally just had to do with the fact that I was out of energy. I would totally. get depleted so quickly. So I have a friend who's really good at this, and she she never actually announced the following thing to me. I just observed her doing it. She like says yes to every social invitation, but like you, she comes in, you know, going really strong, and then peters out quickly. So always after you know half an hour or an hour or whatever, she'll like with a big smile, very politely, say her goodbyes. And no one really thinks about it. I think about it because I notice these things, but no one else does. Yeah, I actually like the approach of not saying goodbye and just like disappearing. Once everybody's made contact with you, they're uh-huh. like, oh yeah, James was here, but now he's not. <laughs> and then it's kind of like just leaving after that. So though the host uh, will it, notice. I still feel like you have to say your goodbyes to the host because even though you think they're so distracted by their 100 other guests, I think they remember who said goodbye. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Well... Susan Cain, always, it's so enlightening and I learned so much from you. I, I just loved Quiet and it's a constant presence on my bookshelf for years, your, your book about introverts. And now the next book that's going to live on my shelf for years is, is Bittersweet about 
you know, basically about this, the benefits of melancholy, which I always sort of suspected and have even written mm -hmm. about, but you really get into the scientific research and you tell such great and beautiful stories. And I love these techniques that I've been writing down while you've been talking. And I, I even love the songs on your Spotify list. It's inspired me to make my own bittersweet list. So that's what made me start thinking you should let people do that on your website. It'd be kind totally. of a fun Yeah, thing. I really have to do that. Thank you for that idea. And and so thanks once again, Susan. And and what's next? What are you what are you going to write um, about next? Well, I'm, let me see if there's a theme. So there's introversion. <laughs> there's melancholy. Uh, uh, I don't know what could be the next one. What's what's the next one? Uh, you know, I have my next book idea, but I'm not telling yet, <laughs> and um, and I'm not even writing it yet. I probably won't even start for another year or so because I. I, I put so much into all my books that I need a break uh, in between. Yeah. But I am going to be launching uh, a podcast probably in the fall. So that will be a kind of in-between project. Okay, good. Well, congratulations on that. And Thank uh, you. when you do that podcast, come on here again and we'll we'll talk about your podcast. Oh my gosh, I would love to do that. That'll be fun. So thank you once again, Susan. And I, I really appreciate it. And I love Bittersweet. Thank you so much, James, for having me. It's always so fun to talk to you. 